Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. Joining us is Nathan Christ, the principal of Watermark Golf. And Nathan actually has the honor of being the first person we've interviewed since uh, unveiling our new podcast room. So this is exciting for us, and we're excited to have Nathan joining us. Uh, Nathan, thanks for taking some time with us today. Absolutely, Guy. I appreciate the uh, invitation. It's exciting to help you break in the new technology. Yeah, and this is the uh, fifth edition of our Tartan Talk series where an ASGCA member joins us and we talk about something that fascinates him or her. And Nathan has a lot of different interesting things that he's working on and he's been involved with. Uh, I think the first thing, Nathan, is just kind of tell our our listeners and the people that don't know you in the golf industry how you got involved in this business. (laughs) It's kind of strange, actually. I I grew up in Indiana in a small uh, town called Charlestown, uh, right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, but I got involved in golf uh, in the very untraditional sense where most kids, they start playing with a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt. Nobody in my family played golf, and there was no golf course in my town. In fact, I actually got hooked on the game by watching Jack Nicklaus play golf on TV, and uh, my parents had some property, so at about age 10, I decided if I was going to learn how to play golf, I would have to first build a golf course and then teach myself how to play, I guess the rest is history from there. So, What type of golf course was it? How much land were you working with, and how were you and your friends able to use it? Well, we had uh, actually ended up being three holes. It started out as three par threes, um, and then as we a few years later we got older and started hitting the ball a little bit further, we had to convert one of the holes into a par four, uh, which had its own challenge because we had to hit across a field over a, a road and back onto the golf course. So. One person would have to be a spotter to make sure cars weren't coming before the other people were teeing off. But my dad was a uh, contractor, and we made a deal with him. If he would, if we would maintain the bunkers, uh, he would bring us a truckload of sand so that we could actually have sand traps. The greens, we didn't have mowed down anywhere near putting height, but we did uh, borrow a an old push reel mower from a neighbor who wasn't using it anymore. We got it down as low as we could. We actually mowed, hand mowed the greens with that. Um, but that's actually where I taught myself and a handful of other uh, guys how to play golf. Obviously, a lot has changed in your own career and in the golf business since then. Explain the evolution of your career and how you got to the point you're at now. When I was when I was younger, and again, I played high school golf for four years, uh, I wasn't really good enough to go play college golf. But I knew I wanted to be in the golf business, and I knew I wanted to design golf courses. Uh, but, of course, the question was at that time, how? You know, where do you go? What what move do you make to get into that? And out of the blue, I got a flyer in the mail from Mississippi State University and their professional golf management program. And, of course, my, at that time, 17-year-old brain, oh, I'll just go become a club pro. <clears throat> I'll get a job working at a golf course that's either under construction or about to undergo renovation. I'll introduce myself to the golf course architect and he'll hire me on the spot and so that's literally what i was thinking when i was 17 years old but i went off to mississippi state had never been to the state of mississippi before in my life uh, fell in love with the school and the campus got a great education with um, a great cooperative internship experience at different golf courses uh, and of course mississippi state has a great agronomy program there as well and i got about halfway through my college career and started discussing with one of the of the uh, advisors about maybe switching over to turf. And he said, well, that's going to 
cost you about another year of school before you can get out if you do that. You know, when you're at that age, you're ready to get out of school and go, go uh, take over the world. So I decided to stick with the DGM program and, and go that route. You're a fairly new ASGCA member, and you have an interesting backstory to how you got to be a member of the society. And you also have a connection with Bob Cup, who unfortunately left us earlier this year. Talk about what Bob meant to your career and what it's like to be involved at the ASGCA. It's no hyperbole to say you and I would not be having this conversation if not for Bob. I was working as my senior year um, at Mississippi State. I was working as an assistant golf professional at Old Waverly Golf Club, uh, which is in West Point, Mississippi. And Bob designed that golf course back in the late 80s. And the owner um, and a, a committee were courting the USGA to get the Women's U.S. Open, which they eventually did, to, to be hosted there at Old Waverly. So Bob would come in from time to time and, and make site visits. And one day he was going to be in town, and it was a day that I was working in the superintendent, a man named Bill Colorado, who's been the superintendent since the course opened, knew I was, I wanted to be a golf course architect. He had seen some of the work I had done in some classes. And he said, look, Bob's coming to town. Would you like to kind of tag along as we go around? And he talks about some changes he wants to make to the golf course. And well, I was excited and thrilled. Said, Absolutely. So we had this you know, long train. If you've ever been on a site visit with an architect, a lot of times there's a train of six or seven golf carts winding through with different committee members and people tagging along. And so we followed around the golf course, and I listened to him talk about different things. And when we get done, we get back up to the clubhouse, and everybody's shaking hands and, and saying their goodbyes. And Bill introduced me and said, Bob, this is Nathan Craze. He uh, is a assistant golf professional here and uh, Mississippi State University student and really wants to be a golf course architect. And Bob shook my hand and in all sincerity, looked me dead in the eye and said, well, good luck. It's a tough business to get into. And that was that. And I don't know what I was expecting him to say. You know, oh, great, come on. I need to, you can come work with me. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen. But it, it really was a shock to my system. And I, I kind of walked out, got in my car, and I was driving back to my apartment. And it just kind of hit me. It made me mad. I thought, you know, he, he doesn't know me. What does he know about me? I, I can, if I want to do this, I can do this. I'll find a way to do this. And it kind of lit a fire under me that maybe I needed to have lit uh, because I really had no plan after college how I was going to get into golf course architecture. He lit a fire under me that got me motivated to find a way to make it happen. I did find that way to make it happen. And then years later, I actually sent Bob a little email and just said, you know, I've never told you about this story but I want to thank you because you really did. That helped get me going. And his response was essentially, well, then I'd like to help you continue that career. And then uh, he became my lead sponsor in the ASGCA. Uh, unfortunately, um, when we were at the meeting, which was my first meeting, which was back in, in April, he was unable to attend because he was sick. And then uh, you know, we found out soon after how sick he was, and that was that was tough. Um, on a lot of people in the industry because Bob, Bob impacted beyond his family and friends. I mean, he, he was a huge influence on a, on a large number of people. And looking back on it, he was obviously right. It's not an easy business to get into, is it, now that you've been in it for a while? Oh, absolutely not. And like I said, I, I, was, a, I was a naive 20-something-year-old kid in college, you know, and, and I don't know if – I guess I was thinking I'd shoot out some resumes to Reese Jones and, and a few other people and I'd have a job in no time. And he kind of helped me – 
crystallized the reality of what was about to happen. And I actually, when I graduated from college, I actually got out of the office for a little bit. But as you know, once you're in it, it's kind of in your blood. And that lasted for about eight or nine months. And then I went to work um, for a guy who was a golf course superintendent who also wanted to design golf courses and, and worked with him for about eight years before starting Watermark Golf. You've been involved in a lot of different projects and a lot of cool projects. It seems like some of your recent work has been with practice facilities, whether it be short game areas or, or full-scale driving ranges. When did you realize that you could build a niche in that? And when did you realize that they were going to become increasingly important parts of golf facilities? Well, that was something that, again, going back to when I was a child, when we built that little golf course on my parents' property, um, as we got older, we couldn't hit full shots, so we became relegated to wedges, and uh, we would hit all kinds of shots, hit, hit shots over sheds and trees, and if a kid would stand there long enough over him, all kinds of different things that we learned how to do, and it really, without knowing it, I was developing my, uh, my short game, so that when I went off to Mississippi State and became an assistant golf pro, I would be giving lessons during these co-ops, um, my focus inevitably turned toward the short game and helping people with their short game. And so I kind of had that background. And then when these opportunities started to arise, uh, the first one, I guess, would have been the Ole Miss uh, golf course, uh, which I know people think is ironic because I graduated from Mississippi State. But we had uh, we did a practice facility at Ole Miss for the men's and women's golf team. And from there, it kind of evolved. We started doing short game facilities and things. And it when the economy started to slow down eight or nine years ago, obviously it's just no mystery what happened to the golf industry as a whole, but a lot of golf courses, I had clients who still wanted to invest something into the golf course to, for no other reason than to compete with the people down the street, the club down the street. Uh, and it's just it's a lot easier for them to invest two dollars $300,000 into a nice upscale short game facility than a few million dollars in updating the entire golf course and that becomes just a, another piece. Plus, as a golfer, it's easier to go spend an hour uh, maybe with your kids or, or by yourself working on your short game, which is going to improve your score more than beating balls on the driving range anyway. Go out and work on that short game for an hour rather than trying to carve out four or five hours to go play 18 holes. What was it like being a Mississippi State Bulldog and trying to make the Ole Miss Rebels better, better at a sport? We got along great, and it really the rivalry – Kidding aside, you obviously attended Mississippi State and participated in the PGM program and became an assistant golf prof professional. So you got to meet a lot of golfers of a lot of different skill levels. And you took agronomy classes, too, at Mississippi State. How does it help kind of having different backgrounds in the golf industry when you're designing a, a, a practice facility? Well, at the time, I didn't realize how much of an impact it would be. But now, you know, I look back and it's been 20 years that I've been doing this, and I find that there are a lot of things, when, especially when we're sitting around talking with green committees and, or different peoples, especially when we're working with municipalities. Uh, we have a lot of public projects we've done with municipalities up to the U.S. Air Force that 
having my background with not only uh, operations and, and turf and, and management of the golf course and the operations from the inside as far as the golf professional, um, I think it adds value to the product for the client because we're able as a team to kind of sit down and address issues that um, beforehand. We don't have to worry about them popping up down the road as far as everything from traffic flow to what type of equipment we're going to be using to maintain to uh, you know, irrigation to all types of things that, that might otherwise go unnoticed if we didn't have somebody from that section of the industry involved on the team. That kind of leads into my next question when a client comes to you and says, hey, Nathan, we want to redo our, our practice areas. What are some of the first considerations that, that need to be made and where does the conversation go from there? Well, you know, ironically, a little, most often um, that first phone call comes from the golf course superintendent. Uh, you would think that the golf pro would call, but for some reason the golf course superintendent is usually the person to call. And I think what it is is, you know, they realize that there maybe is a, a parcel of property there that could be better utilized. You know, I, I know that it's been longstanding that golf pros and superintendents don't see eye to eye, but I think that uh, I think that's a lot of uh, <laughs> that's a lot of that's blown out of proportion, especially in the last eight to ten years. I, I think uh, golf course superintendents and, and professionals have to come together and, and have come together to, to make the industry better. So what happens is they'll say, we need to find a way to grow the game. We need to file you here some some way. And, and they will call and say, look, we've got two acres or we've got a half an acre or we've got this piece of property. Um, what can we do with it? And there is no one-size-fits-all option. We've done everything from uh, we've taken a, a corner of a practice facility and built a, a short-game green complex to the facility we did um, at the, the, the three different universities, all the way up to what we did at Tupelo Country Club in North Mississippi a few years ago, where we redid the entire range, chipping green, putting green, and then built a three-hole short course uh, that was comprised of two double greens and a triple green in a 10-acre fairway area that was just shrubbing and overgrowth before we, we did that, and now it's a great little facility you can go out there and take your kids and play golf. You, they give lessons and clinics out there. There are actually plaques in the ground. We didn't want to build tees because I didn't, didn't want the superintendent to have to go move tee markers. But there are plaques in the ground. If you want to play these this configuration, either six or nine holes, you can. Or you can just set up next to a green and practice your, your bunker shot. So there are all types of, um, of options ranging from the smallest with the smallest budget to the the biggest with the, the largest budget. A lot of these older courses, when they were designed and built, the practice areas weren't as prominent and maybe didn't even factor into anything. What is it like trying to build a, a 21st century practice area into 20th century space, and how mind-numbing can it, can it be? <laughs> well, that's a great uh, question because a lot of that depends on the client. Um, the client, if the client's committed to, to making it happen, then they let you... Uh, get creative and be imaginative with it and they're they're supportive of that then you can do just about anything and and, um, and you don't always have to spend a lot of money to make that happen and one case in point is uh, Webb Park Golf Course which is a is owned by the city of Baton Rouge their uh, recreational authority we have a project that will be starting this spring there um, which they're calling a mini range and essentially what this mini range is is a you can kind of imagine a large 50 by 80 foot batting cage with eight stations in it, we're moving some tees over to put in this mini range so that they have a place to warm up. Uh, it'll be immediately behind the 
practice green there just behind the clubhouse, but it is an older golf course. It was, it was opened in the early 1900s, and there's just no room to build a driving range. Well, now they'll have a place to warm up, and in future phase, hopefully, they do have room for a short game facility that uh, we might be building that. Couple Not weeks. only have you worked with Ole Miss, you've also worked with Mississippi State and the University of Southern Mississippi. Just tell our listeners what it's like working with major college sports programs and how much emphasis are they putting on their facilities, not only in golf, but you're probably seeing it in all the sports when you're on campus. Oh, it's no doubt. I mean, if, if uh, anybody's been on a Division One college campus in the last 10 years, you just see uh, the amazing and almost mind-numbing amounts of money being invested in different facilities from football to basketball to uh, baseball, you name it, and golf is no exception. Uh, the great thing about the golf facilities is typically when you invest that money, you're investing in both the men's and women's uh, facilities, whereas baseball, you have a separate baseball field, a separate softball field. Um, so we're able to get a little more bang for the buck. Typically, we're working not only with the university, but also directly with the alumni associations and private donors who are putting that money up. Uh, for example, at the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss, <clears throat> that entire project was publicly bid. Uh, it was money raised by alumni and uh, as well as the university at Mississippi State. That money was almost completely from the alumni association, and we did a lot of that work in-house with the golf course staff, and we built a really nice, uh, we had to rearrange a couple of holes to make it happen, but a really nice practice facility for the golf teams there at Mississippi State's golf course. Now, that's been, I should say that's been five or six years ago, even though they still use that facility some, um, Gil Hans built a new facility for them as part of his Mossy Oak project across the street from Old Waverly, probably 30 minutes from the campus. Um, so now they've moved out there because they, they have room for the building with the overhead doors and the uh, track man and all that, which we didn't have room for. We knew that going in. And now the facility that we did is being used by the PGM program and the uh, Mississippi Institute for Golf out there, which is, is helping people learn the game. Those are two separate projects. But And then at... Um, University of Southern Mississippi, USM, in Hattiesburg, they actually acquired rights to a piece of property at Hattiesburg Country Club. And uh, that was a great location for them because it was closer to campus. And there at the club, the uh, Alumni Association put together the funds for that. And that project was opened a couple of years ago. I, in fact, found out a couple of weeks ago that um, that project was actually awarded a uh, Design Excellence Award by the SGCA, uh, which was uh, a thrill for me because, you know, that's a, an award voted on by my peers and other people in the industry. So, um, so that's really special. Awesome news. Congrats to you and congrats to all the winners of the Design Excellence Awards. Nathan, what is it like designing a practice area for a high-level Division One golfer compared to maybe what you would have to think about if you're uh, designing one for, for the average golfer? Not really different guy. The other people have asked me that, well, how are we going to do this since it's primarily for the golf team? But what you have to consider and what I can try to consider is that at the end of the day, my goal is for the only limitation to be on any golfer who's using this facility, the only limitation needs to be their imagination. And it sounds kind of hokey because it rhymes, but the um, that's, that's the fun part of it. They need to be able to hit all kinds of different shots off all kinds of different lines things that they can replicate that they're likely to run into out on the golf course. And the project at the at Hattiesburg Country Club is a perfect example because during the school year, the team 
school during the summer, the members use it. So it, it's it can be used by some of the best Division One golfers, as well as high handicap seniors and beginners. Uh, and that's the flexibility has to be built in from the get-go to be able to accommodate any range of players. What do you see the future of practice facilities being? I don't really see it slowing down. I think people realize that, um, and I just I see more and more of it in the news. I think people realize that there is a value built into these facilities because, as we said earlier, you can go spend a little time there, maybe get out of the office on your lunch break, or go spend an hour with your kids on the weekend when maybe you don't have time to go play 18 holes. So for the golfer, I think there's definitely value built into it. And for the facilities, it's a way to grow the game, to grow their customer base or their member their membership numbers without investing a huge amount of money. And it's something that you know, they, can, they can make it a part of a larger project down the road. In addition to your design work, you, you're also an excellent writer and have been involved in a lot of writing projects. You're working on a fiction book, from what I understand. Tell our listeners a little about that. Started writing um, back in, I don't want to say professionally, but started writing back in about 2001, 2002 for a friend who had a magazine, a golf magazine. And uh, he called me one day and said, look, I've got space in the back of the back, inside back cover. I don't have an ad. You want to write something for me real quick? And so I wrote a little thing and I, started, I called the column Lip Outs. Um, and the idea was, you know, it was not exactly perfect. It lived out and, you know, I was trying to make it make it funny and, and kind of have a funny take on the game. And the response was great because people, that's the next issue. People said, where's the lip outs column? And so I started writing. And as you know, as a writer, when you're, you have that deadline, that was something I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, I was just doing it for fun. And then he would call and say, hey, I need your column. for <laughs> I have to go to print tomorrow. Um, and so for eight years, um, I had a monthly deadline put on me that I wasn't expecting. But it, it allowed me to kind of refine the writing style. And yes, uh, a few years ago, I started writing a fictional thriller that I just wrapped up earlier this year. Um, Ron Witten from Golf Digest was kind enough to read it and write the foreword for me. And right now we are trying to find a, a, a literary uh, agent and editor to get it published. So... Hopefully, I'll have good news about that in the coming months. Any golf references in the book? There are a few golf references. The the story itself is more of a, uh, without getting into to, too much inside baseball, it's a uh, kind of a government conspiracy um, thriller that jumps back and forth some from 1955 in New York City to 2013. And the main character um, was, a very, was a good golfer, although that's not the focus of the, of the story, he was also a Marine in World War II and a, a very successful private investigator in New York. But um, I think you'll get a kick out of it when he he dies in 1955. But in 2013, the government's looking for him. So, where can somebody go to read your your columns or learn more about your work? Well, all of the old columns uh, that I wrote for Lipouts, uh, I have a website called Lipouts.com, and there's an archive there with all the old. Uh, pictures, or excuse me, old stories in that. Uh, and then if you uh, go to NathanCrace.com, there are links there to the uh, the stories and, and the other things that we're doing. So um, who knows? Hopefully some of that will take off as well. Well, Nathan, thanks for uh, joining us. This was a fun Tartan 
Talks, and I didn't think I would ever be talking about a fiction book in a Tartan Talks episode, but we appreciate <laughs> your time and keep up the great work, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, look, Guy, I appreciate uh, the call and the invitation and the talk, and um, glad that we could help break in the new facility there for you as well. Look forward to seeing how it turns out. You've been listening to the Superintendent Radio Network, the podcast of Golf Course Industry Magazine, a production of GIE Media. I've been your host, Guy Cipriano. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes or the SRN page of golfcourseindustry.com. Talk to us at srn at gie.net or at GCI Magazine on Twitter. Thanks for listening.